You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast on the 21st of May 2010. I'm David Payne. This week we're looking at the legacy of large multiple sports events. With the 2012 Olympic Games costing £9 million and that cost being justified by saying how great an impact it'll have on the health of the nation, what's the evidence to support that? We'll be talking to Jerry McCartney about his systematic review. Such statements aren't based on any evidence. I think that's clear. And certainly a a more informed discussion about what impacts events might have would be useful. Also this week, antibiotic resistance is a major problem. More and more often we have to turn to the second line drugs as bacteria becomes immune to the more common ones effects. This week on BMJ.com we published another systematic review, this time looking at the link between prescribed antibiotics in primary care and antimicrobial resistance. Alistair Hayes tells us about his findings. So this is suggesting that um, there is a clear relationship between antibiotics prescribed to these patients that contributed to these analyses, and that the strength of that association diminishes with time, but nonetheless persists even when one looks at a 0-12 month time period. But before all that, I'm joined by Annabelle Ferryman, who's here with this week's news. Hello, David. Yes, well, we've got a terrific analysis of the coalition government's uh, policies on health by Nigel Hawkes. In it, he looks at basically uh, how the two sides, how the Lib Dems and the Conservatives are trying to sort of work out a uh, policy that will satisfy both of them, because obviously, you know, their manifestos are quite different in lots Mm. of ways. The Tories uh, have decided that they're going to set up a central board to control the NHS. But um, where they've come to some sort of compromises over local PCTs, local primary care trusts, the Lib Dems wanted them all to be entirely elected, rather, you know, so that they'd mirror in a way local authorities. They'd be very similar to our councils, yes. but in charge of healthcare. Well, um, the two sides seem to have come up with a sort of uh, compromise whereby uh, some of the members will be directly elected and some will be appointed by local authorities. Nigel Hawkes says that this is possibly going to be problematic because. Um, Everybody's talking about how we must have reconfiguration of services, which really is a euphemism for closure of hospitals and such like, because uh, we've got to save a lot of money. Mm. And he's saying how difficult this is going to be uh, if primary care trust boards are packed with local politicians. They're unlikely to vote for any changes unwelcome to their constituents. And local authorities are also going to give, be given the right to challenge any change that's mooted through the reconfiguration panel. So oh. this looks, yes, it looks as if there might be rather a deadlock or, mm. you know, an ampass. Yes. Um, well, I'm sure you and Nigel will be covering it in the BMJ in the next yes, few we weeks. Yes, we will. We will, definitely, yes. What else have you got for us today, Annabelle? Uh, well, we've got a report in the journal this week on the consensus conference on diabetes. The panel came out with a lot of quite radical proposals um, about tackling obesity and increasing exercise and so forth. They think this is much more important in the long term than, for example, um, Mm. increasing bariatric surgery because the numbers are so gigantic. They're predicting that, you know, in some countries as many as one in four adults are going to um, suffer from type 2 diabetes. 200 million in China by 2030, I'm reading here. Well, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and they're saying, really, governments have got to encourage people to um, eat better. That you know, the transport policy should encourage cycling and walking. You know, more cycle lanes and so forth. And that really, the only way to deal with this is to um, tackle obesity. Um, what else have you got for us today? Well, we've got two more stories from the United States, which look interesting. Uh, they're both in the journal this week. Um, one is about the. Uh, f- 
FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, asking doctors to report to them any about misleading drug advertisements or misleading statements made by drug reps. Yeah, it's called bad ads, isn't it? Bad ads, yes, yeah, it's quite like nice, it. quite catchy. Very <laughs> Americans, they're, they're very good at thinking up titles for these things. Um, and um, what they point out is that in the FDA, they've only got 12 uh, members of staff to monitor these ads. And as you can imagine, there's you know, there's a huge, overwhelming number out there, plus, of course, presentations by drug reps and so mm. forth. And so they're appealing to doctors to, you know, keep their eyes open and report anything to, you know, to the FDA that they feel is misleading. And they give a few examples of the sort of thing they'd like to hear about. When a speaker program has a slideshow that presents efficacy information, but not risk information, they say that would be the sort of thing that they'd like to know about. Also, when a drug company representative in an exhibit hall at a conference tells a doctor that a drug is effective for a non-approved use, They'd also like to hear about that because that is not meant to be promotion for non-approved uses. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I don't know whether doctors will, you know, embrace this uh, yeah. campaign or whether they'll just they have too many things to do. But it's quite exciting. Quite I imagine some already complained to the FDA. Oh, yes, I'm sure they do. Yeah. And of course, obviously, competitors do it. That's also another great source of, you know, um, competing companies complain about what their competitors yeah. are doing. But no, I'm sure some doctors do. Yes. And then another story we've got from America is interesting because it um, shows a slight difference of opinion between doctors in the States and doctors over here. Basically, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, has issued some recommendations or guidance on um, female circumcision or some people call it female genital mutilation. Over here, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health have said that while on the one hand they, they appreciate most of what's in the guidance, because most of the guidance is saying that, you know, this um, uh, practice is barbaric, mm. um, they they part company with one part of the guidance because basically the Academy of Pediatrics is, is talking about a, a sort of a compromise position, really. They're, they're saying that you have to recognise that there are some families who are very, very committed to having uh, their daughters circumcised mm. and that um, they'd like to see a change in the law in America. This is what how they put it. It might be more effective if federal and state laws enabled pediatricians to reach out to families by offering a ritual nick as a possible compromise to avoid greater harm. So this would be a very, very limited, uh, very small uh, operation, which would really just be sort of a ritual. Whereas basically the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and over here and um, the paediatricians take a slightly harder line on it. Mm. Uh, and they say, um, for clinicians in any country, the act of engaging in any ritual female genital cutting, no matter how token, will make them complicit in continuing the practice of female genital mutilation. So there is this quite interesting difference of opinion, really. And I mean, obviously... What they're saying in the States is there's the lesser of two evils, possibly, um, uh, a token operation. Um, but but basically, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists over here are sort of saying, no, no, that still goes too far and you should really just condemn it outright. Now, that sounds like exactly the sort of story that probably will attract lots of rapid responses on bmj.com. It could well do. So don't forget you can do that on that story and others. And also, if you want to have your say about the coalition government and their health policies, we have a poll running on bmj.com as well, so you can vote there too. Now, the construction for the 2012 Olympic Games is well underway. And as seems to happen with any large public event, costs are spiralling. 
We're told that the cost is justified because it'll be a fantastic legacy for the games, redevelopment of a large portion of East London and the whole nation being much fitter in general. But what's the evidence behind these assumptions? I'm joined on the phone by Jerry McCartney, a specialist registrar in public health in Glasgow. Jerry is one of the authors of a recent paper published online on bmj.com which looks at the legacy of large sporting events. Jerry and his colleagues carried out a systematic review collating the results of 54 studies and looked at the evidence of impact of these events on the host population's social and economic determinants of health as well as the health outcomes themselves. So for a start, Jerry, when you were looking for suitable studies to include in your meta-analysis, you only went back to 1978. Now, why was that? In essence, prior to the 1970s, there was very little emphasis on leaving a legacy for the host city. It was only really after the Montreal Olympics in 1976 that um, left a a large financial um, debt burden for that local population that um, the legacy became more important for host cities. And so the nature of events changed. Um, They started to limit the number of um, athletes and entourages that came to events and there was much more focus on making the events break even and also leaving something behind for the host population. So we didn't want to include events that were of a different character to the ones more recently. Right, okay. And obviously when a city wins a bid to host a major sporting event, I mean, a huge um, emphasis is made now on the kind of the legacy issues, you know, the sort of lasting health and transport benefits. So, I mean, what did you specifically find on that front? Well, the the overall key finding is that the quantity of evidence is actually quite low and uh, the coverage of, of the outcomes is quite patchy. For instance, there were only um, five studies with any kind of health outcome evaluated and most of those studies actually only looked at health service outcomes. So there are big gaps in what um, evidence is available. The majority of studies that were available were looking at economic outcomes. Yes. So whether big events um, had an impact on economic growth or employment. Um, And there were a, a smaller number for things like transport and Um, other outcomes, um, sports participation, uh, housing and the like. Right, Okay. You note in your your paper that the five studies that were health-related that you looked at all had a high risk of bias, is that correct? Yes, it was a recurrent theme throughout all the studies that we looked at that the the study quality was generally low by sort of clinical medicine standards. Um, Clearly it's very, very difficult to do randomised trials in, in this kind of area, but Um, Even taking that to one side, very few of the studies had comparison groups, so it's difficult to say for certain that any outcome that we've quoted here is, is, uh, is definitely related to the event itself. When I read your paper, I was struck that there seemed to be lots of immediate evidence for perceived benefits, but there weren't many looking at the longer term in the months and years afterwards. That's entirely true. Most of the studies um, across the outcomes were of that nature. Um, For instance, the economic studies also were very, very short term. Um, By and large, about two thirds of the studies that uh, produced positive economic outcomes, they were the studies with the shortest uh, time periods of study and also the, the economic studies which took least account of the various sources of bias that might arise from such economic studies, whereas the ones that looked at longer-term outcomes were far more equivocal or even suggested negative outcomes for the economy from hosting uh, major sports events. 
So there, there's certainly something to be said for longer-term research and trying to clarify what the true outcomes of events are. Right, OK. Um, obviously, we know we're, we're getting a lot of hyperbole about the Games now, and it is £9 billion, I think, the current budget for the Olympics here in London. Um, you know, I suppose the bottom line is you, you're suggesting that the claims of, about the benefits are, are actually probably unfounded or, or oversold. Clearly, we can't um, say much about future events. This review only looks at previous events and whether the evidence has been collected from previous events. There is also a difference between an absence of evidence and evidence of absence. The majority of the outcomes that we're looking at here have an absence of evidence, so we simply don't have many health outcome studies. We can say a little bit more about some of the other outcomes, such as the economy, where um, there is more of an evidence of absence rather than absence of evidence and so based on these poor quality studies albeit that they, they do have a number of flaws that um, an economic legacy is, is less likely. Okay so looking ahead to the future how do you think politicians should play it when they want to bid for a big sporting event? Should they claim that it's going to have a huge impact in the local area? Such statements aren't based on any evidence. I think that's clear. And certainly a, a more informed discussion about what impacts events might have would be useful. But it's also clear that as uh, time goes on, there is a greater effort being put into generating a legacy. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, legacy discussions didn't really kick off until after the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, which was often uh, suggested to have been a real boost for that city. However, it's certainly um, not a given that we're going to see positive impacts uh, in London to do with the Olympic Games and, and the same with the 2014 Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, and, and none of that can be um, assumed. Right. And I suppose thinking beyond 2012 and 2014, what kind of research do you think we should be commissioning in the wake of those events to sort of find out definitively what the effect has been? If there's one message from this review is that there isn't enough high quality evidence to be able to say with any certainty what we might expect from future major multi-sports events. The kinds of things that are required are um, a greater number of studies looking at a range of health outcomes, longitudinal studies which include comparison groups so that we can be sure that any secular trends are actually attributable to the event themselves and we would also look for the economic studies to be of a higher quality for example they need to take into account opportunity costs many of the studies that were um, included in this review um, simply added up all the benefits to the economy by taking the money spent on the olympics and then multiplying that through the rest of the economy but that money clearly would have been spent elsewhere. Um, and so you have to take into account these opportunity costs when you're doing the economic models. So the economic studies can certainly be improved for the future and we can clarify what the net economic output from such events might be. Jerry McCartney, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can read Jerry's paper online on bmj.com. Now, we all know that antibiotic resistance is a growing problem, but just how much is down to GPs prescribing them in primary care? Duncan Jarvis finds out from Alistair Hay. I'm joined now by Alistair Hay. He's a GP in Bristol and a consultant senior lecturer in primary care at the University of Bristol. Now, he and his colleagues have published a paper online this week on bmj.com looking at the effect of antibiotic prescribing on antimicrobial resistance in individual patients in primary care. Now, Alistair, 
this is a big problem, antibiotic resistance. Has it been widely studied already, and how good are those studies? Firstly, I would agree uh, antibiotic resistance is uh, a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, there's a a large amount of research been published. And specifically looking for relationships between uh, antibiotic prescribing and uh, antibiotic resistance, there have been two broad groups of studies. One set of studies that look at population-level prescribing data, such as in the UK, the the so-called PACT prescribing data. Mm-hmm. And the inherent problem with those population-level type studies is that one doesn't know whether a specific patient has received no antibiotics, one course of antibiotics, or several courses of antibiotics. And so the, the um, associations can't be described for individual patients. It can only be described at the population level. And therefore, it's difficult to know from those studies whether reducing prescribing in an individual patient would make any difference to their resistance. Okay, and is that what your research set out to to try and uncover? Uh, That's exactly right. So what we decided to do was to look for studies that had looked for those relationships within individual patients as opposed to those uh, population-level studies. Mm -hmm. And we were, um, one of the principal criteria that we were searching on was that those patients had received an antibiotic in a primary care type setting uh, or that it was uh, an antibiotic that was commonly used in primary care. Now, you mentioned there that you were looking at a primary care or a primary care type environment. Now, obviously, that means different things in different places. Did that really complicate your research? How did you manage to adjust for that? Um, Not a great deal. We found that most of the studies... Um, were either, well, the the vast majority were uh, looking at um, patients who had received an antibiotic from a primary care clinic in the community. Uh, One or two of them uh, were looking at um, uh, emergency care um, settings, but the majority were in community-based clinic-type settings. The one thing that we were um, interested in to know was whether some of these studies could have been done in, stu- in countries where antibiotics were available over the counter. Yes. And that was something that we were prepared to adjust for. But in the, in the event, we didn't need to because um, none of the studies that were included in the review were conducted within those settings. Okay, so this is all places where antibiotics are predominantly prescribed, um, as they are in the UK. Exclusively prescribed, exactly. So you looked at the papers and collected the results, and you can view those results online um, where they're clearly shown graphically. Now, what were they showing overall? What was the link between antibiotic resistance and the prescription of antibiotics? So this is suggesting that um, there is a clear relationship between antibiotics prescribed to these patients that contributed to these analyses, and that the strength of that association diminishes with time, but nonetheless persists even when one looks at a 0 to 12 month time period. And I think that was one of the things that was quite striking for us as investigators, that these antibiotics are impacting on patients' flora for up to 12 months, which is a long time period. Mm, It is. And hadn't previously previously been recognised as being quite so long. and really could only have ever been 
uh, established to this level of clarity using the systematic review of approach mm-hmm. where we've pulled the results of those five studies in order to clearly demonstrate that relationship. So you looked at the papers and collected the results and you can view those results online on where they're clearly shown graphically. Now, what were they showing overall? What was the link between antibiotic resistance and the prescription of antibiotics? The majority were uh, looking at relationships between trimethoprim or amoxicillin and resistance. And broadly speaking, within the time periods, um, there doesn't appear to be a great deal of difference between those two first-line and very commonly used type of antibiotic. Mm. So if the you know if you are a clinician who's who's got a patient with a respiratory or urinary tract infection, I mean, does your research make a difference to how you think you would treat your patient? I think that these results I hope will be very useful for clinicians and patients where perhaps they think an antibiotic is not fully justified. Uh, that's a pretty common situation. Um, perhaps there, there is a sense from the clinician that they'd rather not prescribe in an ideal world. Maybe they're feeling under a bit of pressure to prescribe. And yes, we would um, typically want to provide patients with all the ups and downs, all the pros and cons of prescribing. And the cons, we would typically include things like side effects and rashes and diarrhea and so on. Um, But I'm hoping that this uh, paper might be useful for clinicians to also discuss antibiotic resistance. Um, This is um, a study, as we've said, showing that individual patients prescribed antibiotics actually do end up carrying bacteria that are subsequently resistant to those antibiotics. Yes. And this is um, important because we find ourselves in a bit of a vicious circle. The more we prescribe antibiotics, the more the bacteria become resistant to them, and the more we need to go on and use second or third line antibiotics, and increasingly the bacteria will become resistant to those too, until eventually we have nowhere to go. And the only real way of of, uh, reversing this and and, um, turning it back into a virtuous cycle is to refrain from using antibiotics where at all possible in the first place. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at the link between toothbrushing and cardiovascular disease. Join us then. Goodbye. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.